0: Good morning, Sugar Creek. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Good. So glad to hear that you're well this morning. As previously mentioned, my name is Xavier Maryland. I get the wonderful honor to serve as our new high school pastor here at the Sugarland campus underneath Pastor Abram. And I am, like I said, just honored to be here with you today. Uh, it's pretty obvious that I'm not Pastor Mark, even though I think we look a little bit alike. If you squint just a little bit, maybe you don't see the resemblance. Uh, <laughs> the point is he is away taking some time with his family, truly, truly modeling what it looks like to be a healthy, well-balanced leader. And I think we can honor him just by praying with and for his family during this time away. It's essential that he recharge. He has been loving and leading our church for over 20 years now. And I cannot think of anybody else we should be praying for more than our senior pastor. So as he's away, I just ask that you would continue to celebrate, honor, and pray for him. Absolutely. 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 Uh, Like I said, I'm I'm honored to be here with you today. We recently moved from the DFW area, my wife and I. We're originally, though, from a small town in North Carolina called Rocky Mount. Any small town people in the room, just by show of hands, a couple of people, small town people, even online, you can, you know, drop a hand emoji down in the chat. We're all family today. I like to tell people so they can get a little bit of understanding. Almost everybody I grew up with, we could fit in the Houston Texan Stadium. Uh, Not that we would go or... Anybody would go for that matter, but uh, we could fit. Uh, They told me in my little Houston handbook that it's okay to joke about the Texans, just don't touch the Astros. I just wanted to let you know. You might see a few more of those jokes coming up uh, here pretty soon. (laughs) Uh, Let's jump right right in for today. Uh, I need to give us a little bit of common and shared language that we're gonna talk about today. You're actually gonna be discussing something with the person either on your left or your right, or if you're online, you're gonna be discussing something with the people in the chat today. I want you to go ahead and write down This is called buyer's remorse. That's the first blank. A feeling of regret or wish that you had not done something after you make a decision. And what I want you to share with the person next to you or online in the chat is what is the worst thing you have ever spent your money on? What is the worst thing, not the best thing, the worst thing you've ever spent your money on? Married people, let me give you a tip. Not a good time to have a confessional. If your spouse doesn't know, keep it a secret for right now. Share later, not a confessional. Also, not a good time to say children if they're sitting next to you. I'm not not a parent yet, but I can imagine that wouldn't be uh, very helpful to their self-esteem. And so here's the deal. Uh, Most of us, when we ask, what's the worst thing you've ever spent your money on? There's something that immediately pops into your head. Uh, a luxury clothing item or maybe a luxury accessory maybe a handbag maybe a watch it could be a car or a home that you felt like you overpaid for after you looked at what your neighbors paid it could be anything in the world maybe you're like me it might be 2015 carolina panther super bowl tickets but it could be anything in the world we all have something that when we say hey what's the worst thing do you have any buyer's remorse all of us have something for me, it almost happens to me every time I have to go buy a new vehicle. Uh, I told you we were living in the DFW recently, and there's this phenomenon that happens in Dallas. Um, the weatherman can't predict it. I can't predict it. I think only the father knows. But randomly, baseball-sized hail can and will fall from the sky. It will rain, just like a normal rainy day in Houston, except baseballs. And I used to own a 2016 Ford Mustang that I bought brand new a few years ago, and it was totally in a Dallas hailstorm. Whenever people ask me why I left Dallas is because normally when you see stuff like that in the Bible, God is punishing a place. And uh, I just, I don't want to be a part of that. God loves Houston, not Dallas. No, I'm joking. If you're from Dallas, have family in Dallas. He loves us all the same. The point is I had to go because I, I, it was too much danger. And so uh, the, the point is I went to the dealership and I want you to think back to the last time you were in a car dealership. They walked me in and I'm not saying anything's wrong with this process, it's just how my process went. They walked me in and said, hey, Mr. Mr. Marilyn, what can you see yourself driving? They walk me around and say, hey, what feels good to you? Say, hey, what car is speaking to you right now? They're like, hey, what, what do you feel like would be best? And they let me sit in there, they let me test drive it. And I'm getting on the highway and I'm doing the speed limit. Obviously, he's like, hey, man, don't, don't do the speed limit because I'm here. I was like, you assume that I speed, sir? I am a pastor. Uh, and so he's like, hey, I, I want to know, does it feel good? What features are you looking for? Then after we're out of the car, he walks me to the financing office because I'm financing. Hey, what down payment do you want to put down? What uh, you know, monthly payment do you want to make? He's not asking me about long-term interest, long-term costs or anything. like that. He's trying to get me to fall in love with what I feel in the moment and he's asking me, hey, what do we need to do to make sure that you get this feeling all the time? And the truth is, I want you to imagine what a car dealership or a sales office would look like if you heard a pitch like this. This is your newest car sales commercial. (laughs) Uh, Hey, thanks for coming in today for the price that it would cost to send your kids to college. I can sell you a car uh, that does the exact same thing as every other car, but you're just going to pay twice as much for this one. Uh, If you're lucky, you'll only be disappointed for the next few years until after we release the new model. Uh, Don't get me started on what it'll be worth after you drive it off the lot, only a couple thousand dollars less. But hey, at least you get those heated seats because they'll come in handy in the Houston summers. Uh, Car sales would plummet through the floor. Because here's the deal. In the moment, you don't really, when you're buying a car normally, if you're like me, you're not always contemplating what it might cost you long-term. You're not thinking about depreciation or long-term maintenance costs. You're thinking about what you feel. And the truth is that most of us have gotten pretty good at not spending our money on things that we don't want. But the truth is that there's another type of buyer's remorse that you and I face. It's a spiritual buyer's remorse that happens Oftentimes when we make decisions, we we make decisions every single day and those decisions impact our family, they impact our finances, they impact our health, they impact our spiritual lives and they have these massive implications. And the job of the adversary and the goal of the devil is for you and I to make decisions every day and to not count the cost. Because think about it. You know what that spiritual bias remorse feels like. Think about the last time you've made a decision. You go back right now and say, hey, if I had just been different in college, if I had just chosen a different first spouse, if I had just decided to parent my kids in this way, if I had just decided to major in this thing instead of that thing, if I had just treated my grandkids better, spent a little more time, if I had just prayed for my neighbor when I had the opportunity, if I had just joined my last church when I was there, if I had just been kinder to my ne- whatever it is we all have things that if we're truly to be honest that we look back and we face a bit of buyer's remorse and the goal of satan is to put together this great package of feelings in the moment and to get you to walk away and not count the cost to not count the cost until the sin is finished to not count the cost until the divorce is final To not count the cost until your children are in college and you've lost valuable time. To not count the cost until you and the business hit rock bottom and you question whether or not God called you to start it in the first place. To not count the cost until you've been gone from church so long that the very idea of you walking back into the physical church seems foreign to you. And what I want us to talk about today is how do you and I make decisions in such a way that we don't end up with this spiritual buyer's remorse, that that we don't end up looking back on our lives and saying, hey, I traded away my purpose. I traded away peace. I traded away joy. I traded away all of these things because there was something I wanted, but it's not ultimately what God wanted for me. And and, and here's what I, I want us to realize today is that empty decisions, if you're taking notes, empty decisions are filled with consequences. Empty decisions are filled with consequences and that every decision that you and I make holds weight. I want us to look today at Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter number 25, verse number 27. Genesis chapter number 25, verse number 27. Um, I haven't memorized, I mean how to get there, not the actual scripture. So Genesis Genesis, you made it. Don't go to the table of contents, first book. Genesis chapter 25, I wanna give you a little bit of background. In the Bible, we hear about this guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham is known as the father of the faith. And it's because God made a promise to Abraham to give him many descendants. And that promise uh, is even transferred to his sons through a guy named Isaac. Now remember, we're talking about buyer's remorse. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have twin boys at 60 years old. Now, I know you think that's a reason to regret and to have remorse because you're thinking about raising twins at any age, but let alone 60. But they have twin boys at 60 years old. And what happens is those boys have two names. Of course, Esau gets his name because the Bible says that he was born with all of this red hair on his body. Esau in that language means red. Jacob uh, was born and he got his name Jacob because he was grabbing at his brother's heel. And that's what Jacob means in this scripture it means heel grabber and it was actually prophesied over their mother that the two boys would struggle their entire lives and that actually the older son would end up serving the younger son and that's where we find ourselves in verse number 27 genesis chapter 5 verse number 27 it says this it says when the boys grew up esau became an expert hunter an outdoorsman but jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home Isaac loved Esau, this is his dad Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game but Rebecca loved Jacob proof that some of you and some of us have favorite children you don't tell them but you definitely do Um, I'd like to think I was my father's favorite Uh, once when Jacob was cooking a stew hopefully my brothers aren't watching Esau came in from the field exhausted he said to Jacob let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why his name was also. That is why he was also named Edom. That's another word for red. Uh, it says Jacob replied first. Sell me your birthright. Now the birthright would be because he was the eldest child. He would be entitled to double blessings, double the property, double the cattle, double everything when his father died. He says, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I am about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Well, Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Here's the thing that we need to know is that sometimes the thing that most satisfies you in the moment leaves you most empty. That sometimes the thing that's most satisfying leaves you the most empty. And here's the deal. When you and I are reading this, it's really easy to shake our heads at Esau and wonder how he could make such a bad decision. But if we aren't careful to learn from his mistakes and to put some plans and practices in place, then you and I will make those same decisions in different parts of our lives, making momentary decisions that have huge impact and implications on the rest of our lives. And so we're gonna take this scripture and kind of pick it up and turn it and ask ourselves the question, what do we need to learn from Esau so that we don't make the same decisions and end up trading away something that is uh, eternal for something that is momentary the first thing that I think that you and I need to do is to plan consistent accountability plan consistent accountability if you're taking notes it's plan consistent accountability verse number 29 says says once when Jacob was cooking a stew Esau came in from the field exhausted I want you to use your imagination for a moment and ask yourself the question what if Esau was hunting with someone else as simple as that Esau is exhausted he's tired he's been out here probably multiple days he's exhausted any snacks or anything that he's brought with him and he's not himself he needs a Snickers he's not himself he's hungry and he's about to make a bad decision and I wonder what it would be like if somebody there could have reminded him of the brevity of just one meal and how important his birthright was See, see, Esau traded his entire birthright for one bowl of lentil stew. Now, mind you, uh, my wife loves Del Frisco's. And so sometimes when I go to Del Frisco's, I feel like I trade away my birthright for a meal, if you know what I'm saying. But, but the point is, at least when I leave, I get a to-go box. I get a little piece of steak to take with me later. Esau trades his entire birthright for one bowl. And I wonder if he would have brought someone with him, if they would have loved him enough to remind him of what he was about to do. And the truth is that in your life and in my life, there are moments that we will be exhausted and we will be tempted to make some horrible decisions, but we need somebody in our life who can speak directly into a situation and remind us not to make the wrong decision, to give us a better perspective. Bob Proctor says it this way. He says, accountability is the glue that bonds commitment to results. And so the job of your accountability partner or the job of you, if you are somebody's accountability partner, is to take the commitment that they've made and take the results that they want and to stick them together. I'm gonna bind somebody to their commitment. My job as an accountability partner is to bind you to the commitment that you made to your marriage. I know even though you've made it through the first 10 years, year 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, they be getting harder and harder. You feel like your spouse is caring more about the kids, less about you. And the truth is you've made a commitment right now in your heart that the moment your youngest son hits 18 and he's gone that you're also leaving with him and the job of your accountability partner is to bind you to that commitment that you made so you don't in a moment make a temporary decision that has life implications the job of your accountability partner is to bind you to dating in a godly standard Because you know yourself and you say, hey, if I'm not careful, I'll fall into a habitual sin. So I need you to consistently remind me and check up on me in this relationship. The job of my accountability partner is to hold me accountable. Maybe it is your online. And you're saying, hey, I've been making commitment after commitment after commitment to come back to church. And the reason you haven't come back is not because you're scared of health conscious, but just because more things keep coming up. And there's a holiday. And then there's my cousin had a kindergarten graduation in the middle of June. So I couldn't really be there because I wanted to be there to celebrate They had party favors. And, and I just needed to be there for this one. And you keep making decision after decision. And the point is you and I need somebody to hold us accountable to the decision than the commitment we've made to be around a body of believers. I have to plan consistent accountability. Everybody say the word accountability. Now, I know it's difficult, but it requires us to let people into our lives now, I have to tell you how I think a little bit about sermons. In your sermon notes, if you're taking notes, there's the, the plan, consistent accountability. There's a reference verse, so you see where I found it. And then there's a little bit of space. In that space is where you create your action plan. You're writing action steps because uh, the Bible is not just meant to be read. It's meant to be practiced. And so what I want you to write under plan, consistent accountability is who is gonna hold you accountable, who has the right to speak into your life. And then I want you to write how often they need to do so. I, I tell somebody, I have a, a mentor In my life, that I gave my wife his number, and I said, Anytime she feels like I'm failing as a husband, she will call you and you can call me. Because I know that there are times that me and my wife aren't seeing eye to eye, and I need accountability to make sure I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to do as a husband. Plan consistent accountability. Number two is this don't be consumed by your appetite. Don't be consumed by your appetite. Esau says in verse 30, he says, give me some of that red stuff. He can't even see what he's asking for yet. Esau's coming from a far distance. He smells something. He's looking over trying to see what his brother is cooking. It's kind of like that moment when you're in a restaurant and you already kind of know what you want. You got the menu in front of you. That's why you're here. But then somebody walks by with the fajitas and they're sizzling and you hear them and you smell them and they go, shh. And you're like, hey, bring me whatever they have. It's that feeling that Esau is having. And so what happens is we don't even figure out until verse 34 that he's eating lentil stew. I bet he was disappointed. He's like, you ain't put no pork in here. You didn't put any beef. There's not a piece of steak in here. There's just veggies. I trade it. Anyway, so the point is he trades it all for a bowl of lentil stew, but he makes the decision not on what he feel like he needs, but he makes his decision because his appetite started to consume him. And the truth is that you and I have things that we focus on that we get consumed by, and, and what happens is it leads us to making decisions that put us in position to have buyer's remorse. Because I'm such fixated on something, I'm so focused on something, I want it so badly that it distracts me. I get these blinders on, and I can only see what I want. Can I? Um, can I be honest with you for a second? Can I? Is this a safe space? Can I be transparent? Uh, nobody said yes, by the way. Okay, I I promise you, it's a safe space. I believe in you. (laughs) Uh, My wife and I are in the middle of purchasing a home now. We just left the DFW area. Like I said, we're trying to buy a home. Pray for us. Um, and the truth is that I had been looking up some things that I wanted in our next home. And I convinced myself, I know, you don't have to judge me, don't judge me. I convinced myself that there were some things that I needed in my next home, not wanted, needed. I know that it became a problem because I even had them written down here. So I will, I, will, I, will, <laughs> I will read them for you. I convinced myself that I needed, not wanted, needed, 12 foot ceilings, a gourmet kitchen, and a freestanding bathtub. And I needed all of that for like three. And I'm not talking 300,000, I'm talking like $3.25. like I needed, I needed the Lord to do something he had never done before. So if you know somebody, then you know, let me know. But the point is, I was almost willing to make a bad financial decision because they will loan you more money than you can actually afford. I was almost willing to make a bad financial decision because I wanted a countertop with a waterfall island. And the point is, I needed somebody in the moment to say, hey, what you have been fixated on, what you have been focused on, what you have been looking at, what you have been desiring is leading you away from a godly decision-making model. And the truth is, you're judging me right now, and that's okay, but the truth is that you have something that you've convinced yourself that you've needed because you're just like me. We're all imperfect. Uh, For some of us, I have some examples. For some of us, you've been guilty of being fixated on being in a relationship. You're single now or single again because you went through a messy relationship and you have the job that you want. You could even afford to buy a house on your own. And you're thinking about this next trip back to your 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 year college reunion. And you're like, oh my goodness, if I could just show up to that reunion, show up to that party, show up to that vacation with someone else, then I would be in a better place. And what happens is you lower and lower and lower and lower and lower the standard for what godly dating and marriage should look like until you make a better bad decision because then you're being consumed by your appetite and you like me are in a tough position. Maybe it is you've been focused and fixated in on this promotion because you're like, hey, the first couple of years of my career, I moved pretty fast. I got a promotion after a promotion after a promotion. But the last five to seven years, I've been kind of stagnant. I've considered a career change. I've considered going back to school. I've done all these things. And you're so fixated on getting the promotion that you've even considered doing some of those non-biblical things that your coworkers do, cutting some corners, taking some tax breaks, doing some things, undercutting people, not honoring your boss, going around authority. Why? Because you're trying to take matters into your own hands because you, like me, are being consumed by your appetite. Maybe it is that I want this certain way of life, or maybe it is that I want a spouse who's a little bit more like this person. And I'm not talking physically, I'm just talking like mentally, emotionally, how they treat me. Uh, uh, men, I'm gonna talk about you because I, I know you, you You can be guilty, just like I can be guilty of looking around and saying, oh my goodness, if my wife was a little bit more understanding, I bet I could start my business. If my wife was a little bit more patient and less naggy, I bet I could uh, uh breathe, I, I, I bet. You say, if my wife was a man, do not look around. Do not look right here, right at the screen or right at me. Do not look, I'm trying to help you. Avoid buyers' and more. It's right here at me. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the guy behind you. And, and so here's the deal you could be guilty of focusing on what you want in a spouse so bad. And ladies, you can do the same thing what I want in my spouse so bad that I start to mistreat my spouse and mishandle what God has given me because I've such fixated my appetite on something else. I've been consumed by my appetite. And I have to set some accountability. Here's what I want you to do. In that little space under it, I want you to write down, if it's something that you're not you know, not quite ready to share, it, then write it at the bottom and then fold it over so nobody else can see it, they can't judge you. But I need you to write down what you think your appetite has been too fixated on recently. What have you wanted, if you're being honest, you've prayed about this thing more than you've even prayed for yourself, more than you've prayed for your children, more than you've prayed for your neighbor. You've been so fixated on what you want. What is that thing for you? Write it down in the margin. Number three is this, to take charge of your attitude. Take charge of your attitude. Verse number 32 says this, look, Esau said, I am about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Now, scholars believe that Esau is exaggerating here. The reason they believe that, because remember earlier on it said Jacob liked to stay and take care of the tents. We find out later that his father is actually a pretty well-off man. This wouldn't be like a tent that they're just sitting around having fun. Jacob was essentially at home managing the family business. He was looking after cattle. He was making sure the servants were okay. He was making sure meals were prepared. He was taking care of a family business. As a result, he wouldn't be able to be away from home without somebody noticing for a long period of time. So Esau is encountering Jacob probably a mile at maximum two miles away from camp. So Esau's not really about to die here. He's really getting impatient. And he's letting the feeling of feeling like a failure because he's coming home without food. He's letting the attitude of being hungry and exhausted. He's letting those things control and consume and take charge of him. And he's making a decision based off his attitude and not based off timeless features. And you and I, in certain moments, we just should not be making decisions. I wanna give you an acronym that somebody taught me It's called HALT, H-A-L-T. And it means that I don't make decisions when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I don't make decisions when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I don't correct my I don't overcorrect my children when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I don't want to talk to my spouse about finances when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I wanna don't wanna be make buying a car when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I don't wanna be making a decision about whether or not I'm going to church when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Because in those moments, I'm prone to making the decision that feels best. It takes energy to make a good decision because you have to deny yourself and do what God is calling you to do. And so I cannot be, uh, uh, I cannot be taken captive by my own attitudes. For some of us, you can be guilty because you have an anger problem and you're in here and your emotions coming out and it's good and you're singing a song. This is what freedom looks like. This is You're going in, but then your kids get in the car. They say something crazy off the wall. You turn around, you curse at them. You don't know where that came from. This is not what freedom looks like, God. I'm sorry. I let my anger get the best of me and I have to take charge of my attitude. You can decide in advance how you will respond to a situation. My wife is amazing at this. I promise you. Uh, I'm looking to make sure that she's here. I'm joking. My wife is amazing at this because what happens is she'll give me a honey-do list. She'll say, hey, you promised me that you were going to do this, 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 and this thing. I'll give you three months to do it. Okay, thank you. You give me grace. You don't even have to remind me. I got you. Go to work. Do whatever you need to do. I promise you when you get home, it's done. And what my wife does, she gets to the door and she's about to walk into the door and she pauses for a moment. And she says, Jesus, I know my husband didn't do what he said he was going to do. I already know, but I'm going to decide in advance to love them anyway and to not be angry anyway. And she walks in the doors and lo and behold, I've surprised her. Not only have I not done it, I've actually created more problems. And, uh, but she's decided in advance how she's going to respond to me and she's taking charge of her attitude and thus I get to live to see another day. Bless the Lord. I'm just happy to be here with you today, physically, in person, in the land of the living, and not up with the Father yet. Uh, but it's because we can take charge of our attitudes. Lastly, I want you to write down in the, in the little margins what, what, what attitude has been taking control of you. Yeah. Lastly, number four, we have to avoid being carried by your ambition. In verse 28, we say we see that uh, Jacob uh, or Isaac had a preference for Esau because Isaac preferred wild game. Remember, I told you that Isaac was a pretty well-off man. So they would have cattle. They would have all the food they need. They weren't struggling. And so Esau is not hunting out of necessity. He's hunting out of ambition. It's a passion of his. It's something that he loves. It's something that he wants. It's something that he enjoys. He enjoys the thrill. He enjoys the fact that he gets to be his father's favorite. So he's chasing that a little bit. And the truth is that you and I have goals and things that we aspire towards, that we chase, that leave us in a a position where we're vulnerable because Esau has stayed out far too long uh, oh my goodness I, I I if I can just stay out a little longer I bet that I can come home with the wild game that my dad likes just like you and I, we can say, hey, I bet if I just work a couple of more hours, I can hit those goals that I've been trying to get. I bet if I just push my son a little harder, then he'll be the best person on his swim team or the best person on his football team. Hey, And I let my ambition carry me to a place that I impact my family and I set my own personal family goals based off ambition and not based off what God has called me to do. We've been guilty of this, we see it all the time. Think about it, we cannot let our ambition and what we want to see make decisions for us. I know you want your son to be great at sports, but if that's interfering with your relationship together, then guess what, the relationship is more important than the sports. I know you want your son to be great, but if he has to miss every single Sunday because he's traveling with AAU, we're literally teaching him that Jesus is second to sports. And God forbid if something happens to him, he has no foundation to lay on because I've set a standard and a precedent and let my ambition pull me away from what I know is best. There's nothing wrong with goals. Financially, nothing wrong with marital goals, nothing wrong with family goals, nothing wrong with any goals whatsoever, but if I ever let those things pull me to a place that I don't feel like God is calling me to, then I've messed up. Here's the last one. For some of us, you've been saying and God has been putting on your heart, hey, it's time for you to start serving. You need to be doing something new. But then you constantly say, oh, we'll work this and, and I have this thing and this thing. And I'm letting my ambition pull me away from what God is putting down in my heart. God has told you, hey, you need to disciple somebody. You need to pour into the life of a kid or a student or join guest ministries or join AV or join the musicians. And God's been speaking to you. But you let the constant ambition, the things that you're passionate about in the rest of your life, pull you away from your godly calling. There's some of you, you even feel like you're supposed to be in full-time ministry, but you don't want to give up the job you have now because the benefits and the pay and everything, and I'm here to remind you, don't let ambition pull you away from where God has you. I, I, I think I want to end when I say this. When, when I was younger, um, we, had a, we had a dog. You're like, where in the world did he get a leash from? I know, magic. Um, when I was younger, we had a dog And we had a real dog, meaning if you have a leash and it's one of those leashes that has a little button on it and that type of stuff, you don't have a dog, you have a toy, you have a pet, you have a, you know, a little friend. If you have a leash that needs some, you know, needs some some leverage too that you can wrap around and hold on, then you have wild game, you have an animal, you have a beast. And that's what we had when I was growing up. We had a boxer pit bull mix. And, and my dad's a pretty large man. He's a 25-year military vet, super strong, still in the best shape of his life. He probably could still beat me in a race. And uh, the point is that we would have this dog and we would go on walks. And I remember seeing him and my older brothers walk the dog. And, and I just wanted to walk the dog. I'm about five years old. And, and finally, my dad keeps saying, son, you can't handle it. You can't handle it. I don't want to give you this dog. It's not a normal dog. And I'm like, dad, calm down. I can handle it. And I'm doing the thing that kids do. Like, I'm asking them Please, 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 I'm shaking. He finally says yes, and I go, yeah. I do the thing that all the babies do. They go... <laughs> Like they start shaking with excitement and and I'm doing that. And he comes over to me and he teaches me how to do it. He says, son, what you want to do is you want to stick your hand through the leash and grab it. That way the dog doesn't pull the leash out of your hand. You control it. It doesn't control you. I'm like, oh yeah, dad, I got this. So he hands me the leash and my dog looks back at me and he kind of realizes that he's no longer in the right hands and he takes off running. So I dig my feet in and I got the little light up sketchers on. I dig my feet in and he takes off and he just drags me around the yard. That's what happens. (laughs) It's just running back and forth. My dad and my brothers thought it was okay to just continue to let him drag me, apparently. This is what happens when you're in the military too long. Okay, anyway, my dad just keeps, I'm just getting drug around and running around. We got a yard because we're in the country and I'm screaming and it's funny. It's like a cartoon. And eventually the dog's about to pull me into the street. So my dad runs as fast as he can. And even though the uh, leash is still on my arm, my dad grabs the leash about halfway down and he begins to help me control my dog. Now I still have responsibility for the leash because it's in my hand, but my father has stepped in and he's helping me to control it. And that's what I'm here to tell you today, is that regardless of how many decisions you've made, whether you feel like you're in college right now, you've made some bad decisions, or whether you're towards the end of your life and you're saying, hey, I just want to see my grandkids be better, but I don't have a lot of time to spend with them yet. Regardless of what age you are in that range, that you've made some decisions, but right now you can invite your heavenly father back into that decision-making process and you no longer have to be pulled by your attitude. You no longer have to be pulled by uh, your your, your appetite. You no longer have to be pulled by the different things of life that your heavenly father wants to help you to rein in your decision making so that you can live a life that you and your children can be proud of. Here's what I want to leave us with. The good news is that um, there's actually somebody in the Bible who made a worse trade than Esau. That by any standard, it would be uh, the worst decision that everybody, anybody's ever made in their life. What he got back was nothing compared to what he gave up. But the difference is that this guy, he didn't have any remorse. The difference is that this guy, he never regretted the decision. And his name is Jesus. Jesus traded his birthright so that you and I might have a chance at everlasting life. Corinthians says it this way. It says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus made a decision before he even knew you. And he said, I want you to be with me in eternity. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you've never accepted Jesus, then I invite you to fill out that digital Connect card or I invite you after service to come down and have a conversation with me or I invite you online to type it down in the chat and to fill out that Connect card or I invite you to step right out of these doors and we're finished and head to the next step center because Jesus already made a decision. He's just waiting on yours. If you're looking for accountability, maybe you need to go join a connect group. You can do that in the same way right outside those doors in the connect center. If you're, if you're saying, hey, right now I need to get involved in serving, I need to be pouring into the life of people in the next generation or in some sort of environment, then you can go to the Next Step Center. This is the decision you make. I don't want you leaving today with buyer's remorse. I don't want you to get in the car and say, hey, what would my life look like if I was discipling someone? I don't want you to get in the car and ask, what would my life look like if I received salvation? I don't want you to ask what would my marriage look like or my single life look like if I was in a connect group. I want you leaving today proud of the decision that you made. And so after we pray and we dismiss, I want you to head right to the next step center. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for each and every person under the sound of my voice. God, each and every one of us has made some bad decisions, but you redeem every one of them. God, thank you for a chance to get it right. We love you, not because we're great, but because you are great. We love you because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it. Amen. Amen.